and welcome to another episode of the rage podcast i am your hostess with the mostest Mikla parker on today's episode we will be talking to dr marinka swift the associate director of irise marinka is passionate about applied scholarship that elevates inclusion her approach to research and program design aimed to address and disrupt exclusionary ideologies that contribute to disparities in sense of belonging across spaces and exchanges. A native Californian, Marinka Swift is a first-generation college graduate, researcher, educator, and linguist. Marinka's research focuses on issues around language inequalities. Her research projects to date have utilized ethnographic methods to explore language ideologies, language and migration and immigration, education and language policy, language identity, and language and power. Her research program examines these issues through the framework of critical race theory, critical race and language theory, and ratiolinguistics. Before we get into this episode, I want to acknowledge how incredible Marinka is really quick. She has always been there for me, and I appreciate the relationship we have been building the last few months. It has truly been an honor to interview Marinka and learn more about her. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. So my name is Marinka Swift. Uh, my pronouns are she, ella, and lei because I speak English. My Spanish is pretty good. My Italian is much better than my Spanish. So those are my pronouns. Um, yeah, before I rise, I mean, I spent the last many years at UC Davis as a grad student. I was doing my master's there in linguistics and then I stayed for my PhD and while a grad student I had to work, got to pay tuition, you know, um, and I love teaching. And so most of the, that was starting in 2014. So 2014 to 2022, I was in Davis and I worked often as a teaching assistant, so I taught linguistics classes, I taught Italian, I taught for the education department, um, classes mostly to in education and international students um, about kind of acclimating to life in the United States, college life, and, and also uh, some linguistics focused courses around English pronunciation and presentation skills and things like that. And I also had positions that were not in the classroom where I was coordinator for student program, programs that were specifically designed for first-generation, underserved, minoritized, racially, and linguistically um, minoritized students. And those positions, I think, were the positions like working as a coordinator for a program to help students learn how to do research, what is that, how to apply to grad school, all of those things was very rewarding to me because I'm a first-gen college student. Though... Every first-gen student, I think, has their own experience and kind of challenges with what that means to be first-gen and why. Um, and I definitely have privilege. So, you know, as a white woman, I, I had some kind of insider knowledge to that hidden curriculum, but I also had to work really hard to get to college. And so those any opportunities I had to work with students and help to demystify the, the power structures and the inequities in higher ed, has always been so rewarding and that just kind of trickled into all of my research interests around belonging. All my research really is about language and belonging. Like who decides how do we how do we impact that? And um, and IRAS seemed like this really nice magical place <laughs> where like research and the community and higher ed are coming together and it 
it didn't take long for me to start to get very jaded in higher ed, where I just feel like there's so much research for research's sake. There's people in power who say the right things but don't actually care. Uh, there's no cost of living adjustment for grad students or undergrads. Housing is expensive. Tuition is continuously being increased. And, and I was just starting to feel really bummed out because I love higher ed. I love teaching. I love academia. Um, but I started to learn too much. <laughs> about how it is and why it is and how long it's been this way uh, and feeling really ineffective I suppose and so when I learned about the job at iRise I felt very inspired for the first time in a while that wow at least there's this place that's trying to do things the right way. I love that and you touched on so many things that I'm going to get into later but before we do that I wanted to ask on your journey to find your passion and your path towards linguistics and the work that you're doing when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> uh, depends what age. I, when I saw that question, I laughed out loud because I was just thinking I wanted to do so many different things. Um, I remember for a time wanting to be a midwife, and I have no idea why. why? No idea. I never met a midwife. I wasn't like around a lot of babies. I have no idea why that <laughs> just sounded like an amazing career path. Um, and then I remember 9-11 happening and being young and the times, the stress of that and the influence of friends, parents and thinking, oh, I'm going to join the military and I'm going to be a police officer. Thinking, I think like uplifting, kind of elevating a certain way, a certain image of, you know, the military and, and police officers, thinking like the good that can be done after a big tragedy like that. Um, but it also didn't make sense. I mean, my parents both went to prison and my house was raided as a kid and I saw cops in my house a lot. And so implicitly, I didn't really aspire to be a police officer and I certainly do not now. So it changed a lot. Um, but then by the time I got to high school, I knew I wanted to go to college. I thought that would be like my ticket to a better life than what I grew up with. And I, and I think I already, I was a nerd, I loved school. So I think I was starting to change them, but I, I had no idea what I wanted to do until until I got my first teaching job, really. Well, I love that too because I feel like I'm the same way. That's what I think. I've always wanted to be a lot of things, but all of them have this intrinsic connection of protecting people. And so like, that's kind of how I feel with what you just said, that regardless of what you wanted to do, it was about serving and protecting of life almost. And that's kind of what you're doing even now. Like the work that you do is very uplifting, empowering, and like you're helping sustain life in a different way. And I think that's beautiful. You touched on so many things, but I think what I want to really ask is, how has being first-gen helped you become a better advocate in and outside of academia? Being first-gen, I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily, I, you know, it's intersectional, right? So it's not just being first-gen, but it was the circumstances, I think, that I grew up with that contributed to me being first-gen that, that have impacted me more as a person and the the, the person that I bring to the work that I do. So my grandparents, well, my, my grandparents went to college, but both of my parents struggled with drug addiction, um, in and out of different types of institutions, both weren't incarcerated. And, um, and that was really scary growing up with that. And it forced me to grow up really early and you know, put me in that protector mode with like a younger sibling and all of that. And so I think 
it also just introduced me to certain inequities. You know, we're talking about like poverty. Growing mm -hmm. up, like the utilities would be turned off because somebody decided like certain things were more important to buy than paying for rent and utilities and stuff like that, getting evicted. And, and so with that, um, you know, making friends, really close relationships and adopting families as my own who were going through similar things, um, you know. And so I think those things and seeing the different trajectories that seemed like our only options with that kind of poverty and um, those stories that we were leaving at home and trying to not have people know about at school, I feel like made for me school a place, luckily, where I felt safe. I felt like my needs were met and also Certain circumstances affect kids so much, even when it's beyond our control. Mm. And I felt like like academia was, and partly because of this like myth, this like this pedestal that we put academia on in this degree, right? This myth that I believed that was not totally a myth, but if you go to college, like you can make it. Yeah. And right. and I think along the way, though, learning a lot about what that means and how it impacts people and how much people still have to work. You know, I always had work study, I always had jobs while I was a college student. Hustled. Um, took my own student loans, my own name. Like, I have the debt, I have the, the hours logged, and it just wasn't, it never felt uh, equitable. It never felt like um, as easy as I thought it was going to be. And along the way, just seeing abuses of power within academia and in every institution I've been in. You know, I remember in high school speaking up because a teacher made an inappropriate comment about like writing on a girl's pants. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, you know, as a grad student speaking up, joining the grad student union, joining protests, like speaking up when, when things just didn't feel right, when, when I heard people being mistreated. And that I think just comes not from being first gen, but coming from my, my personal circumstances and feeling like somebody has to speak up. I agree. And I think as someone who is first gen as well, I can relate to that as well because it's like the idea of if I don't advocate for myself, who will? Because of the power dynamics and knowing that I'm not someone that people are looking to save or take care of systemically. So I definitely, just everything you're saying, like when it comes to high school and standing up and almost that putting like a target on your back because it's like people know I'm going to stand up to this and so now people might just make me shut up and they'll do that with their power instead of maybe telling me my fate. Yeah, or ex or hope and count on you to speak up for them. And exactly. I don't, that's complicated, right? I mean, maybe we're the same, like, I can't turn that off. Yeah. I'm not going to not speak up. But it's definitely happened at times in, in these institutions where there is such a such a threat to belonging Yeah. that not everyone feels that, that privilege to speak up or, yeah. or that the knowledge of my rights and like what yeah. retaliation is and that doesn't change those things from happening but yeah I think it's heavy and I think what 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 came with that too at some point was a sense of obligation um, if this is my personality if these are the things that I care about then I'm gonna go all in and I'm gonna try to contribute something positive so that other students behind me feel protected feel you know that they can aspire to what they set out to do and also not be blindsided by the realities of these power dynamics because they're not going to go away anytime soon. Right. I think that you're setting up a great 
pathway to empower students to not only know what they need to to survive, but like thrive as well. And I think that's ultimately all we can do to pass down to others, you know? Just the tools we've learned on our journey. And thank you for what you've said. So moving on, I wanted to ask, how has your linguistics and research background helped you explore relationships between language and identity? Oh my gosh, so much. So I didn't really like start to reflect on why, how did I get to linguistics until I was, you know, working on my dissertation and getting ready to, to finalize that. And then with that comes all of a sudden you're talking to everybody about your dissertation and have to be able to kind of say what it is. And they want to know, how did you get here? And, um, and I realized it's always been about belonging. When I was, you know, my, I started studying, for me, it started with wanting to learn Italian in college. I remember growing up, I wanted to know Italian. My grandfather was the first uh, in, in that lineage in my family who was born in the United States. Um, his parents immigrated here from Italy, you know, Great Depression. And the way he explained it to me growing up in Detroit, when I asked, how come you don't speak Italian? Why can't you teach me Italian? He said, because I needed to be American. And I remember not, I did not understand why those were mutually exclusive. Like, why? That doesn't answer my question. You can be American and speak Italian, I thought, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so in college, it started for fun. I wanted to just reclaim this language I was really drawn to. And then, you know, be, and then I didn't have any grad school plans. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I applied uh, to one that had really missions in my master's in Italian, all this because it was just fun and I loved learning a language. But underneath, I didn't realize the whole time it was this, this battle with this ide ideology around belonging and language um, and who belongs based on what you sound like and what you look like. And the fact that for him at that time, Italians were immigrants in the same way Mexicans are today and it has that ideological push to assimilate via language to belong, so the story goes, hasn't changed. Um, so I thought I just want to teach Italian. I loved it. I taught Italian at a high school for a year, Italian and Spanish, and realized quickly, like one, high school is not for me. I looked like a high school student still, uh, but mostly it was just not getting at the, the daily life realities of the way that language interacts with people, people's lives in the United States. Like Italian is cool, but I wasn't getting that. You know, I wasn't having students who were like, wanting to learn Italian because they got to go to work or because they want to help their kids with homework or because they're, they have to apply for the citizenship test or these real life things. And I still like wanted to understand more language and identity and belonging. And so that's when I decided to go get my PhD. And, and I think I probably stumble, it's just become the main focus of everything I do is this, this huge ideology, this power, this who gets to decide who belongs and why and where and the way that language intersects with every aspect of identity. Mm. You know, language is a requirement for some people to be Chicanx or Latinx, but for other people it's not. Language is um, associated with this nation state idea of belonging, with citizenship identity, with what it means to be American, and that hasn't changed really. Permissions are granted to some languages and ways of speaking over time, but for the most part the it feels like the root power dynamic thrives still, which is there's this target of what folks are trying, society says you should look like and how you should sound when you look a certain way. Right. Um, and that just really pisses me off right. at the end of the day. I think that you bring up great points that I'm even talking about in my policy classes around how politicians or policymakers will create constructions to put people in 
to leverage voting or leverage um, what they should say. And um, I think that that speaks volumes to that because it's like now it's not just become how politicians see us, it's how we see each other as well. And like mm -hmm. it's blended in so much to our cultural norms. We recently went to the Denver Art Museum to visit the La Malinche exhibit. And within the exhibit, I saw a quote that says, Malinche's legacy begins with the power of language and the politics of interpretation. And so I wanted to ask, after visiting the La Malinche exhibit and hearing this quote, can you reflect a little bit on your experience engaging with the art and the exhibit there, as well as the work you have done with linguistics as a part of what we were just talking about? I mean, powerful like period in history, a powerful story that, I mean, talking about interpretation as it relates to the story, right? The different iterations and versions and perspectives that folks have proposed of Malinche and who she was and what that period was like and why she was doing what she was doing. Um, the power of interpretation, I mean, it is an art in some ways. It's not super easy to translate or interpret another's thoughts or words. Um, not only across languages, but even within a, one language, right? We can't be in someone else's mind. Um, so we, and so much of language, right? Like they say 80% of the information we receive in communication with someone is body language. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. So yeah. if you're removed from that context, there's a lot of interpreting, reinterpreting, um, meaning assignments that are made but that's and that can be superficial but what this this exhibit and this story and this period in history i mean as a woman i'm not even surprised that for so long and for many people still the story is oh how dare she she's a traitor what the heck would you do if you were kidnapped by a conquistador as a woman and probably raped? I'm sure that's how their child... I and mean, a I child. Know, but come on. Yeah. What would you do? Right. Um, and her power, too, in being the language bearer, the language holder, the power of being the one to interpret and translate and assign meaning, to transfer meaning, to gift that meaning. Um, Words are absolutely powerful, and so are the absence of words. And clearly, though, in her case, I think I don't know enough about, you know, what she was interpreting and translating and every interaction and all that, but surely even with the power that she had uh, in that role as interpreter and translator, I don't think it, it's not always enough. But in terms of, like, what you segued into with this, you know, policies and language of the government and, and uh, you know, language being used to, to sway or to promote or to, to tell a certain story, that is absolutely like one of the strengths and weaknesses, I would say, of, lang of language and humans' use of language. Because it can be both so uplifting but also, and protective, but also very damaging and divisive and abusive. So... And I think people in power know that. I mean, we know that. You ever go in a meeting with someone who's technically in a, like, quote-unquote, important role, with, if you're paying attention, you can tell how everyone's strategizing language use, right? Using certain etiquette, certain hedges, certain ways of framing things to get a point across in a way that that is very intentional and strategized. So 
yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this change. No, but you're but, bringing up great yeah. things, I think, because it's just like you bring it, you're bringing up all the different dynamics, the intersectional power dynamics that are the implication of the story we know today, you know? Because, like, at the end of the day, if no one was trying to colonize that area, we wouldn't even have this story. So starting there, you know, like, if there was not someone trying to steal land from people, this story would not have a beginning, a precipice. And so, like, even what you're talking about and bringing it full circle back to government, our government is a colonial state. So much so that even to this day, we're still legitimizing the travesties we've done through policy. Oh, we apologized, and now we made a holiday. So it's okay, you know? Mm -hmm. and, or we did a land-grant acknowledgement. So it's okay. Like, it's just, it's very um, performative and not material in purpose. And I think that, like you said, we know that, and we know why they're doing it because to empower us is to strike change. And that's exactly what they don't want. And I don't think it was rambling. I think you were making some great points. So you were, I was like, but moving on, cause I did that after we saw it, I just thought of you. Like the exhibit made me think of you and like the blending of these cultures and these dynamics you talk so much about. And like even the importance of you using the pronouns and making sure you're being as inclusive across different language barriers. Like, super important, and um, as someone who majored in communications in my undergrad, like, I recognize fully every day how we don't take importance in how we communicate and how that impacts power dynamics and how, how we choose to present ourselves everywhere is, in a sense, political. And that is it. Like, that's just the truth of it all. And now being in policy and doing policy work, I recognize that. And that's why being true to myself is probably going to be scary in 10 years. Because unless change is going to happen, I'll probably be in places wearing my Malcolm X shirt and my anti-racist shooting shirt, you know. And, mm -hmm. and people are going to be still living in the dichotomies we're used to for the last 100 years, 100 plus, 400 plus years. So I, I really love your point. So thank you again. What makes you excited for the work iRise does? And what are you looking forward to bringing to the future of iRise and the work we do? What I'm excited about in the work that iRise does is the community collaborations. Um, and, and of course, because I've always focused so much on students while I'm talking about the second part is also our, are the ways that we're supporting and trying to nurture this like pipeline of resistant scholars, I would say. But the community collaboration, I mean, I think academia is put on this pedestal and, you know, Tom, the director of IRS, will be real and talk about how DU, not unique, not special, like so many other universities, may not have a fence, but there is a metaphorical fence around the campus. There is this sense that it is separate, better, different, whatever. Higher ed has this, like, ooh, yay, it's, you know, mm -hmm. seen as this amazing, untouchable place that I love that iRISE is trying to break that down, um, you know, and even thinking about this idea of like what Paulo Freire proposed of like what counts as knowledge, who are the knowledge bearers, who are the knowledge holders, and so I feel like iRISE really embraces that notion with our visiting community scholars, inviting experts from the community, doing real work in a different way, real work in academia is real work too, but you know, it's um bringing them into the fold and inviting them to share their knowledge, their approaches, their methods, their experience, their expertise as legitimate knowledge bearers. 
that is very unique. I think I don't see many universities doing that. So I think that's that's something I think is super exciting about iRise and and sets it apart from what the rest of the university is doing. What I'm excited about for the future are possibilities to continue to grow our support and our community of iRise students, iRise affiliated students. We have students in the Roger Salters Institute program, graduate students, they're rocking, they're awesome. We have our uh, postdoctoral fellows who are awesome in here and um, with iRise but housed in different departments. So we have a postdoc right now in um, the professional school of psychology, we have a postdoc in the social movement support lab. We're, you know, welcoming candidates for new postdoc fellowships coming up in the history department, focusing on the history of black diasporas. Another postdoc fellow will be working with the grad school of social work on the Our Stories, Our Medicine archive. So just pretty amazing, badass original scholarship happening across campus. Students, and then we also have our brand new program this year, the Bornstein, Gomez, and Somoza um, program for undergraduates who are from underserved, underrepresented backgrounds, minoritized students who maybe haven't yet, but through this program hopefully will be in to see themselves as scholars, as future racial equity leaders, as eligible, totally prepared and qualified for a graduate and professional program. So I'm excited for all of these ways to bring students, more students into the IRIS community. I think that the work that IRIS does is amazing and clearly the foundation is there because it's like going on 10 years plus strong. I believe in the power of students to enact change. I also think that students are the ones paying the high tuition prices. Students are the ones like, I was just there, you know, I just filed my dissertation and um, making the university look good. You know, there are people, the university is trying to get to come here and, um, and they're the, the future of IRISE or the future of the community and I don't ever want to be a part of a university that forgets that or I don't want to become that. So that's my right. goal. Going back to our last question, I wanted to ask, what are some goals you have for yourself professionally as well as personally? Professionally, I would like to, I mean, I'd like to have an impact and, and really grow meaningful relationships built around trust with, with students here. I, I've only been at DU and with IRIS since February, so just a few months. And I gather that DU is probably, you know, evolving and going through some, like, growing pains and identity development, hopefully. I think there's some resistance there. But it feels like I got here and I've, I've heard way too many times already that students don't feel heard, that students feel that stuff is rough, that they don't feel cared for, stretch. And I just got here and I, I also heard that every other institution I was at. So on the, mm -hmm. on the one hand, that's high, higher ed needs to, needs to make some changes. And on the other hand, here I am at DU and IRISE. And so professionally, I hope to be able to contribute to or to grow these systems of support, um, networks of support through IRISE for students. I'd you know, ultimately like to be in a director position. Um, I'm not sure. I love teaching and I miss it a lot, so very much. And I really miss more student-facing opportunities. So who knows, maybe I'll start teaching or something, but for now I'm interested in just learning all that I can in this position with IRISE, learning how to get some more grants, get funding so we can do all these things, and just go from there personally. Gosh, I don't know. Um, 
you know, I think, and maybe you can relate to this, with all this stuff, like, you getting emotional right then, and maybe right now I am too because it's just an emotional day, but I've always been like this when I talk about my research, the things I care about, language, belonging, this, like, these power dynamics that, that these gatekeeping policies and the, the apologies around it and the, the attempt at justifying and the use of language to do all of that. I've had people in academia, women, amazing scholars, tenured faculty, tell me I need to keep it together because I might be in a room full of men one day who like don't respond well to women showing emotions. And, and that's been in my mind for a year, she said that years ago to me. And my research is like working with immigrants. It's working with people who are forcefully, re forcefully repatriated out of this country. Like that is real. How are you not going to feel that? But um, I've thought about that for years, and I would just like call bullshit on that. So personally, on like one hand, I would love to be come more and more in a position to articulate what I know, what I don't know, in a way that is that others can receive to want to enact change as well. Um, and I don't want to lose who I am either in the work that we do. Um, I hear that in all these institutions, you know, there's not always a lot of support for work around DEI for any work, really. It seems like everyone's understaffed and overstretched, and the, the message is just keep grinding because this work is important, but it won't get recognized. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's a really hard thing to balance of, like, how much to grind, how much to to just give my whole self, do I give my whole self or not? Should we all be doing that? I don't know. So I think personally, I'm gonna try to figure out how to keep caring without getting burnt out, without, but also without settling into that comfort of my privilege of like not having to know certain things. I don't want to do that either. So personally, I don't know, try and just balance being a good person and a good scholar with um, some serenity, I suppose. I can't change it all. It's gonna keep going without me, but I do have some part. Well, thank you. And you are so heard, and I feel you on a spiritual level, especially with my concentration being in human rights and social justice on an international level. Um, a lot of my focus has been in human like trafficking and labor rights and what that looks like. And what I'm learning through that work is that in a lot of places, it's not even human trafficking, it's the issue. People are being trafficked to become human sacrifices, for mm. example. That's a huge part of the world, like huge. It's become such a scary, untalked about topic, so much so that as someone who even in my undergrad at, at CSU was doing research in human trafficking, never heard that. I think um, what you speak on is very valid and you're heard and seen, and I hope you continue just to amplify your light because the work you do is so important and I think it empowers so many people. And you empower me specifically within this work and so I appreciate everything you've done for iRISE, DU community in California and for everyone, thank you, I wanted to say. <laughs> and before we close out, I wanted to ask, do you have any iRISE plugs, any plugs for you, um, your social medias, anything that you have going on recently or iRISE has going on in the future? Um, yes, I guess, so iRISE, stay tuned. If you're a part of the DU community, please read our newsletter, check our social. And then it's summer and we'll be planning, preparing for the new year and cool things we'll see. For me, 
know. I guess I could build out my personal website a little bit more, but uh, stay tuned. Now that I'm officially officially Dr. Swift and uh, it's time to start thinking about kind of next steps for me personally and research here in a new city and a new state. I've been thinking about that a lot and that is all. Well, thank you again for making time for me. As always, you always do. I can't make that up. <laughs> As we close out another episode of the Rage podcast, I wanted to share another excerpt from a book I am reading. This one is from Helium by Rudy Francisco. I love Rudy Francisco. And if you aren't hooked on game, you're welcome in advance. <laughs> this one is called Mercy after Nikki Giovanni. She asked me to kill the spider. Instead, I got the most peaceful weapon I could find. I take a cup and a napkin, I catch the spider, put it outside, and allow it to walk away. If I ever am caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, just being alive and not bothering anyone, I hope I am greeted with the same kind of mercy. another episode of the rage podcast the rage podcast is the product of the interdisciplinary research institute for the study of inequality or irise to learn more about what we do please visit our website at irise.du.edu to ensure that we bring you quality content please be sure to subscribe follow like or share on the platform you are listening to us on for rage opportunities and updates please follow our social media pages you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.